You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua? We've been studying Joshua for some time. We are in chapter 11, 10 and 11 today. And I would ask you to uh, take a look at a passage with me. It's, it's a rather odd thing perhaps to be having three things converge in one day, in Sunday, uh, this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, Remembrance Day, remembering uh, the wars and those that fought and so on, and then studying Joshua, and not just studying Joshua, but actually entering into one of the very most bloody parts of Joshua in the conquest of the land of Canaan, the Promised Land. And so as we, as we come together, there's, this, there's a lot of strange emotion going on in me. And I guess the commonality of those three events or things is that they're all full of bloodshed and they're, they're all full of, of a lot of suffering. One of the things we need to remember every day that we open up the book of Joshua is that, that this was something that God had ordained and, and, and was using Israel to act out on His judgment. It is a scary thing when we read in Scripture that God actually hardens hearts. We see it in Pharaoh's time in the Exodus when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He had hardened his own heart, but then God hardened his heart. We see in scriptures that we're looking at today where God hardens the Canaanites. God had given them some four, five hundred, six hundred years from the time of Abraham when the, the land was promised, but God had given them time to turn and to repent. But it seems that they'd given themselves over to even more corruption sacrificing children and uh, worshiping idols and, and demonic influence and so on. And so God had finally decided to come in judgment. We see yet today that God still can harden hearts. We see in Romans chapters 1 and 2 that God comes to a point in some lives where He gives them over. It's, it's like God in, in history, in the Scriptures, shows us that people have a, a chance to follow Him. And if someone persists and persists and persists in rejecting God, God will one day then say, okay, if you want to follow that, then, then He will give them over. It's a scary thing. And so as we think about that, we need to understand that when we open the Scriptures in Joshua 10 and 11, we are looking at God acting through His people in judgment to bring about His hand of wrath. And that is not God's first way. His way is a way of mercy. He is slow to wrath. He is abounding in love. And so as we, we ponder this, we come now before the Scripture. And I'd ask you to turn to Joshua chapter 11. And we're going to just read one verse, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me anyway. Joshua chapter 11 and verse 23. It says, So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and He gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. God bless His Word to us today. You may be seated. Most historians believe that the conquest of the land of Canaan could be divided into three military campaigns. There was, first of all, the central campaign where Joshua entered in with Jericho to the central regions of the long land and, and divided the, the two parts, the north and the south. 
conquering Jericho and the city of Ai, which are two strategic cities in the, in the center where there were trade routes and where there was high ground. And after having done that, we studied that some time ago, then he turned south. But it, the, the real way that it opened up was that by the providence of God, one of the southern communities, the city of Gibeon, the Gibeonites tried to deceive Israel by suggesting that they were a people from a far off land. And Joshua signs a treaty with them in the name of the Lord God. And so all of a sudden, this southern king of Gibeon is an ally, a, a treaty bearer with Israel. But other kings of the south hear about the treaty that is made, and they come in war against Gibeon for their, for their being traitors. Because of the new alliance, Gibeon sends a messenger to Joshua at Gilgal, and he says to him, come and help us, for they are coming against us. And because of Joshua's word to Gibeon, and in the name of the Lord God, he, in obedience to the treaty, he comes then, he musters all of his forces, he marches all night long, some 40 miles, and he gets there, and he's climbing 1,500 feet in the process, and he gets there in the morning, and he, he has a surprise attack upon these five kings and their armies that have been camped around the city of Gibeon. And so in this scripture, in, in, uh, we see this in chapters 10, verse 9 and following. What does God do? Well, it says in verse 11, that more are killed because of hailstones than by the swords of Israel. You see, what happens is that God throws them into confusion. They start to run from Joshua. And as they're running, these hailstones are falling in the middle of the desert and crushing people. And it says that more are killed from hailstones than from Joshua. And that's not all because the job's not done. And so then Joshua prays to the Lord God for more time. And so God extends that day and the sun stands still in the sky, it says, for 24 extra hours. And so they're able to complete the destruction and only a few of each of the five kings' armies escape. Verse 14 of chapter 10 sums up the southern campaign by saying this, Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Now, I'm not going to go into hailstones and sun standing still in the sky. I mean, if you can't accept the fact that God already caused a, a, a group of thousands, perhaps millions of people to exist in the wilderness for 40 years off of rock and, and manna and quail and things like that, if you can't accept that God already opened up the Jordan through the flood stage so that they could pass through on dry ground and surprise the enemies that were waiting for uh, at least four months more, if you can't accept that all these other miracles took place, and I'm not sure you're going to believe me if I tell you that hailstones came down and killed more than swords did, or that, uh, that the sun stood still in the sky for a day. It's amazing how many documents have been written and how many articles and how many commentaries try to go into, well, the way that God did this was, and I just don't understand why I even go there. We're we're finite, we're natural, and God is infinite and supernatural and still will not understand it even if we think we do. In chapter 11, we see the beginning of the northern campaign. And that's, again, initiated by an alliance of kings, just as we saw in the southern campaign. And so in the northern campaign, the king of Jerusalem actually calls all of his friends and they drop their battle lines and, uh, and, and it's interesting that even though they're the ones that are initiating the battle, it's Joshua, again, that gets the first attack. Joshua jumps on things 
attacks them when they are not looking for it. And uh, we need to think about this as we process how to apply this in our own lives. We have to consider that we are indeed a group of people who do not struggle against flesh and blood like the Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, but instead against these spiritual principalities and powers. And I think one of the lessons that we learn from Joshua here is that there is an alliance of enemies against our souls. There is an alliance of enemies lined up against everyone who said, I'm going to follow the Lord God, Jesus Christ. And uh, before we ever should let Satan come and attack us, we should be actually attacking him. And we should be doing the same with our own sin. Um, we're going to talk about this today. Our spiritual enemies will not waste time in forming alliances against us. If there ever was a deadly alliance formed against the Christian, it is the three kings of the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three kings have made an alliance and they have determined to bring you down. They never rest. They were always going to be actively against you, even if you don't realize they are. They do not waste time in conspiring against you, whether you're alert to them or not. And you need to know that this godless trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will always be seeking to destroy your faith. Always seeking, never resting. And so we need to be on the offensive, not the defensive. I'll be coming back to that later in the sermon. If you have your insert in your bulletin, a yellow piece of paper, you'll notice in there, a quote at the top of the page from a man by the name of Alan Redpath. He says that throughout the whole book of Joshua, we have seen that the land of Canaan corresponds in the New Testament to our inheritance in Jesus Christ. What the land was to Israel, Christ is to you and me. The land rested from war. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The victory was won. So the question then that we come at is, if the victory's won, how come I still feel like I'm so much in the battle, you know, against the devil, against the world, against the flesh or the sin that lives within me. And today, I think, in understanding the way that Joshua unfolds, we are to understand our own lives, in our own lives, some of the ways that God intends for us to do battle. So the three things I'd like to share with you today all have to do with how to conquer these spiritual enemies through faith. And the first thing I'd like to say is that in order to conquer our enemies through faith, we need to go back to where we began. We need to go back to where we began. That's the way we need to start. And, and we need to continue going back to where we began. Five times in the book, uh, in chapter 10, the word Gilgal is used. Gilgal was the place that they set up camp as soon as they had crossed the Jordan. Take a look at chapter uh, 10 and uh, both, both verse 15 and both and verse 43 used the same terminology. Joshua returned with all Israel to camp at Gilgal. We see that actually at various times throughout Joshua. Joshua returned with Israel to camp at Gilgal. In between the battles, Joshua returned to camp at Gilgal. After one or a defeat or a victory, Joshua returned to camp at Gilgal. Why? Because Gilgal was a significant place and it's where they began. For the Christian, Gilgal represents going back to the cross, going back to where you began your journey with God in a right relationship, your reference point. 
So before we just unpack the application a little bit, let's think about this place, Gilgal, and what took place there. First of all, you'll remember that that place was right after crossing through the Jordan, they grabbed stones from the middle of the dry Jordan riverbed and they put a, a monument there. And they said, whenever your children ask you, what's, what is this stones all about? Remind them what the Lord did to deliver you. Next thing they did once they set up that monument was that they took every soldier, every male that, was, that had been born throughout that 40 years in the wilderness and they circumcised them. Now, that's not the best military strategy, is it? Get onto territory that's enemy uh, and, and then circumcise all of your men. But that was because God again was saying, you belong to me, you're a marked people. I am the one who is going to lead you. Then it says in the Bible that, that they celebrated the Passover, first time since after, just after leaving Egypt. They celebrate the Passover. What is that all about? That's a reminder that, that they are a covenant people, a blood-bought people, a redeemed people. God passes over their sins and redeems them as His own. He invites us to the table. And then the manna stops and they begin to eat produce from the land. Incredible, incredible passage of Scripture. Incredible place. They'd come through the Jordan representing a death to the old life of slavery and wandering coming up out of the Jordan to the other side, representing a brand new life. And it starts at Gilgal. What is the Christian's Gilgal? It is the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary, where you and I began our journey. There at the cross, you renounced your past life of slavery and wandering. There you passed from death to life. There you were marked with a spiritual circumcision of the heart, the Bible says. There Jesus wiped away the shame and reproach of your past life. That's what it says in Joshua. It says that, it says that uh, He wiped away, He rolled away the shame of Egypt. That's what Gilgal means, is rolled away. There also at Calvary, God Almighty renewed His covenant with you. He stood at the altar like I'm going to do this afternoon with Dustin and Sarah. And I stood at the altar and he said, I, Yahweh, the living God, take you, sinner. And he accepted you and I through his blood, through his son, Jesus. There he reminded the Israelites as well. And he reminds you and I that there is an inheritance waiting for us to receive. You see, many of us were taught wrong theology when we started our journey with God. When we started and received Christ, we were taught wrong theology. Or we came into our Christian life and we were taught nothing at all. And we brought into that Christian life theology that was wrong to start with. And I think that a lot of the theology that we have been feeding on over the years has been something to do with the fact that the cross is the way you begin the Christian life, but it's not the way you continue that the cross and accepting Jesus and all that and confessing your sin and repenting and turning and all that was something you do at the beginning, but it's not something that you have to go back to. But the Bible teaches us that you go back to the cross again and again and again and again. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's why Paul says that we are living sacrifices because we should be given over to death every day. It's not an event, folks. It's an attitude. The cross. The crucifying of self. 
that, that wants to rise up and, and live daily. You see, the very mercy that drew you to the cross at the beginning is the same mercy that will keep you at the cross throughout and enable you to overcome the enemy. The same mercy. And so Paul, various times, talks about this death to self. Not as an a, a, a one-time act, but as an attitude. It's not just a lopping off of the limb here and there of the tree of sin, trying to manage it or manicure it. It's taking the axe to the root of the tree, the stump of us, and it's going there and continually putting it to death. At the cabin where we have, near Kenora, we have a whole bunch of lilac bushes that I love lilacs, but they, they're just growing in the wrong places and I've never taken the time to take a shovel and dig them out. So I take the chainsaw and I just, just raise them down at ground level every year. But the next year by June, there we are with lilacs all over the place blocking the view and so on. That's what the self-life is like. The self-life life is like that. It'll, it'll just keep on coming back. You can cut it down all you want. You can lop off branches and trim it down. It's going to keep on growing until you get to the root of it. A.T. Pearson has written that coming to Christ is not a matter of cutting off an indulgence here and there. It is laying the axe at the root of the tree of self of which all indulgences are only greater or smaller branches, self-righteousness, self-trust, self-seeking, self-pleasing, self-will, self-defense, self-glory. These are all a few of the myriad branches of that deeply rooted tree. And what if one or more of these be cut off, if such a lopping off of some of these branches only throws back into the others more energy of the self-life to develop other branches more vigorously in them until the axe then is laid at the root of the tree of self and our natural life gives place to the life of the Spirit, all of the other virtues that we might add to ourselves are only taught practices grafted on a corrupt stump. You see, you can live the Christian life and look like you're doing it all right, and you can be all carnally motivated and sourced, and you will end in defeat. It's only the life of the Spirit that can live the Christian life. We sang it in one of our songs this morning that the, the power to obey your commands can only come from thee or something like that. That's true. That's true. Someone once said that every individual, there is a cross and a throne. When self is on the throne, Christ is on the cross. And when Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. It has to be that way. That's the life that God has called us to. James Denny, Scottish theologian, said, no man can lift up both himself and Christ at the same time. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. He says, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. In God. So as strange as it may sound, the Christian is the one who's constantly living the dying life. You see, God does not grade your spiritual maturity on the curve compared to somebody else in your class. God grades your spiritual maturity between you and Him on the cross, not the curve. 
And if you are living a daily life of surrender and giving it over to Him and, and taking the self and crucifying it and living for His glory and for the good of others and for everything that belongs to Him, then He is going to cause you to mature in your faith in union with Jesus Christ. And you will be victorious over those enemies that want to bring you down. The mercy that drew you close at the beginning will keep you close if you are in the habit of constantly going back to where you began. Well, secondly, conquering your spiritual enemies by faith not only requires going back to where you began, but also by receiving what you're being given. And there's a pattern in Joshua here in the Scriptures. There's a pattern that we see over and over again, and it is, in essence, God initiates and Joshua and Israel respond. We don't have time to look at all of it, but in chapters 10 and 11, it's especially paramount where God gives over some city or some king. Joshua takes the land. God gives over or hands over some people. God or Joshua takes them. And, and that's the scriptures that we see. So whereas our first point is this idea of going back to where we began and what God gave you up front, now it's a God continually giving you a walking, an experiential Walking it out with God. And in overcoming of spiritual enemies because of the imminence of God giving it to you as you walk by faith. It's God continually giving you and you taking, acting on what He has given you immediately. Putting your enemies to death requires a violence against sin. We don't even like to talk about sin, but if we're not going to talk about the enemy, we're not going to be very victorious. It means violence against sin in the way that your flesh would never be violent against sin. You see, if, if we were left to our own devices, you and I would never be so aggressive against sin as if when the Spirit of God fills you and you start to act out of Him and His power. Then you will slay sin. Then you will put it to death. But see, if you acted in the flesh to try and co control these corruptions and so on, then you will, you will do other things with sin. You'll play with sin. You will manage sin. You will tolerate sin. You will relabel sin. You will renegotiate with sin, make alliances with sin. It is only when we follow the Lord Jesus and do are we able to do to sin what has to be done to sin, and that is to slay it. Kill it. It doesn't deserve to live. It has no place with you and your holy life in Christ Jesus. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You're not making use of that. Take a look at chapter 10 in Joshua with me for a moment. Let me just set up the scene. So, so the southern campaign is happening and Joshua and Israel are marching against these five kings that are attacking Gibeon. And God has rained down hailstones and He's put the sun to stand still and they're victorious. And, and, and in the process, they capture the five kings of the Amorites. And they take them to a cave at a place called Makeda. And then as the Israelites pursue the, the Canaanites and continue to get some of them on the way back to their cities, um, He waits. And then finally, when the commanders of the armies come back, Joshua says, go get the five kings. He brings the five kings out of the cave and he has them lay out before 
All of Israel, all of the army of Israel is watching as this happens. And then you'll notice in chapter 10 and verse 24 what he does. He says to his army commanders, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And so they came forward and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies that you are going to fight. And then Joshua runs them through. And he kills these five kings. Now please, just don't lose me here. Don't let the X-rated gore of this scene get you off track as God acts in His judgment. Come back to the 21st century for a moment and think about what this lesson has to say to you about your enemies, about your victory. Think about every evil that you have ever wrestled with. Think about every sinful tendency and temptation that stalks you like a thief. Think about the sin that is creeping around your door and desires to have you. Think about the many times that you have cowered and caved into something that was more powerful than you and you just gave up as a victim. Think about how many times God has been ready to give you the deliverance and you've not taken it. You, you couldn't find it. Think about those enemies. And then think about what God is saying in this Scripture to you. He is saying, come here. Put your foot on the neck of that sin. Whatever the sin is. Put your foot on it. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I know what you're like. I know how weak you are. I know your history. I know your, your record in the past. Be strong and be courageous. Because this is what the Lord will do to those enemies. It is the Lord that will give you the victory. God is saying, I don't care how strong the foe is against you. I don't care how many times you've succumbed in the past. I don't care how intimidating it is for you. I don't care how defeated you think of when you even imagine victory. God's Word says that regardless of the enemy and its strength, I, I will give you the ability to put your foot on the neck of that sin, that vice, that curse, and you can slay it. Now, are you a believing believer or are you an unbelieving believer? Because it's at this point that we go wrong. We are unbelieving believers too often. And we just think that this is as good as it gets. So we make an alliance with sin. And we just say, well, I guess this is just the way it is. Uh -uh. That's not what I see. You're just depending on your own strength. You're just looking at your own track record. You haven't seen Jesus' track record. Now the army commanders saw this, they witnessed it, and they had to decide, do, do I believe this or not? And you know, the good news is that they, they left Joshua from that scene, and in chapter 10, the rest of the chapter 10, they believed it. Because starting in verse 29, 29 we see over and over again, what do they do? They, they leave Makeda, and they go to the five cities where those kings were, and they, they take the cities. They take their enemy. In fact, if Joshua had a, a scribe with a copy and paste, he could have made, saved himself a lot of time, because in 29 it says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on. Verse 31, Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on. Verse 34, Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on. 
36, then Joshua and all Israel with him went up. Verse 38, then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around. And what is it going on? They're going city by city by city by city. They're killing. They're, they're conquering all their enemies. Because the Lord promised it. I believe it. That settles it. That's what they thought. But the tests are not over. We don't see them really get challenged until chapter 11 in the northern campaign. <clears throat> in the northern campaign, in chapter 11, we see in verse 21, they come up against the biggest people they've ever seen. They're called the Anakites, the sons of Anak. And we, we actually know a little bit about them because they're the people that were in the land some years earlier, 40 years earlier, in fact, when the parents' generation of this army sent 12 spies in to check out the land to see if we could take it. And they came back and they said, oh no, there's no way we're taking that land because guess what? There's Anakites in there. Huge people. In fact, they give in to such fear in their report, they call them, they call them the Nephilim. And if you want to go back into Scripture, the Nephilim were this prehistoric people in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood that, that were so incredibly powerful. But you see, they didn't last through the flood. And so here is, in Numbers chapter 13, the report of the, the spies are saying, they're the Nephilim. Well, you know what? The Nephilim, they didn't live on. The legend lived on, but that was all. And they were just fear-mongering. They were just given in to anxiety over this because these people were huge. The amazing thing here is that are the, are the army commanders going to believe and go on to even fight those people? In Joshua chapter 11, verse 21, we see Joshua encounter the sons of Anak in the hill country. And he destroys them. He drives them out and they only remain in three cities according to verse 22. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Guess who's from Gath? Big guy in Scripture. Goliath. So years later, they didn't stamp them all out because one of the bloodlines must have continued on and there's this guy named Goliath that's nine feet tall that David had to slay. But the amazing thing about this Scripture is that in this passage, it's, it's actually... In chapter 14, we're going to see it in a couple of weeks, it's Caleb, the buddy to Joshua, the old man Caleb, that says, give me that territory where the Anakites are. And he goes in and he conquers the Anakites and stamps them out even further. To us, the Anakites represent the sins which are most difficult to overcome. <clears throat> they may represent some of the sins of our fathers. The generation that preceded us. Perhaps that didn't have faith. But this is a new generation. We are not bound cyclically by generational sins in the name of Jesus. We're not bound by that. And the new generation of faith can move in, in, in with, without fear, without blaming, without feeling like a victim. And they can overcome by the power of our Joshua, Jesus Christ. So Romans 8.13, Paul says, then put to death the misdeeds of your body. Get rid of those things. 
He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The word actually could say, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. You know, we don't use the word mortify too often. I hear it, I hear it sometimes in a very shallow way, like, well, I was mortified when I, you know, and, you know I mean, you weren't put to death. But that the Puritans love to talk about two words, mortify and vivify. Mortify means you put to death, and vivify means you fan the flame of life. And that's what Paul teaches over and over again. He says, put to death the things that belong to this corrupted flesh nature and put to life the things that belong to God. We have a responsibility. You know, in, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, that wonderful book that John Bunyan wrote hundreds of years ago, bestseller next to the Bible. There's a place in Christians' approach to the palace beautiful where John Bunyan describes him walking up a corridor toward the palace beautiful. And at the end of this aisle, there are two, two lions, live lions, one on each side. And John Bunyan writes in parenthesis in his book. He says, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. I like that. The lions were chained, but Christians saw not the chains. You know, as you and I think about our, our track record in victory against Satan, sin, and this world that try to bring us down, we think, man, these are foreboding enemies. We can't, we can't overcome. Because, you see, we see the lions, but we don't see the chains that our Lord God puts on everything that comes against us. Satan is a lion on a leash. We are given victory. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have been given a whole arsenal of things to help us, including brothers and sisters and so on. We don't need to be victims. The last thing I want to say, say is that conquering, conquering our spiritual enemies by faith not only requires going back to where we began, receiving what we've been given, but also resting in what we have. There's two very interesting summary verses in this middle part of Joshua in the campaigns of war. And, and one of them is found in verse 23 of chapter 11 that I read to you. In chapter 11, verse 23, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. Then the land had rest from war. We might get the impression when we read summaries like this that this whole campaign took a few weeks and they were in. But really, it was something like seven or more years, uh, one author suggests. Uh, years. These were not easy enemies to overthrow. Just like the enemies against our souls, the things that we struggle against are not easy enemies to overthrow. And in chapter 11, we see that sometimes the, the, the victory might be fairly quick. It says in one passage in chapter 11, I think it's verse 6 or so, where God says to Joshua, at this time tomorrow, 
this time tomorrow, I'm going to give them into your hands. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love it if God just said, you know that thing you're struggling with? Uh, this time, tomorrow, next week, I'd take next year. <laughs> I mean, this time, next year, you're going to be done. I'm handing it over to you. But then there's other scriptures that in this passage, for example, in chapter 11, verse 18, where it says, Joshua waged war for a long time against the one king. You and I can, can be in that place where we wage war a long time against some of the vices and things that we wrestle with. There may be seasons of our lives where we wage war in a long time and the key to it all is, is fighting by faith and from faith and not in our own strength. And then the history of Israel teaches us that there will come a time when that sin will lose its grip on you when you will be able to put your foot on the neck of that sin and you will slay it. It does not mean that you can relax. It does not mean that you'll not struggle again. It does not mean that you can rest because the resting that God calls us into is a vigilant resting where we are still in fact, in fact involved in spiritual warfare. The amazing thing about the passage that we are looking at is that as I finish today in chapter 11, we conclude the united campaign of Israel in Canaan. Okay, so from chapter 11 going forward, Israel is no longer fighting together. Okay, so when we get into chapter 13 and following, the tribes are now responsible to take their own inheritance. That's why chapter 11 ends with that summary statement that Joshua divided it all up. And now it's up to individuals to, to take their possession. Joshua is our Jesus. Jesus has won the decisive battle. The, ter the battle, the territory is ours. But now he calls each one of us to go in to take possession of that which we have been given by the grace of God. That's the picture we get in this scripture. So as we conclude, and I, I want us to take a moment to pray. I'd like us to the worship team could, could come and just uh, maybe have some music. and um, I would like us to think about wherever the Holy Spirit of God is, is uh, touching in your hearts and your lives. And maybe it is today that, that something is just glaring you in the face. Maybe it's, as I've shared, maybe it's something very obvious. And maybe it's something that's more subtle, but... Right now, I'm going to ask you to stand with us and I'm going to pray for you. And the value of me praying for you is only if in your heart and mind, as you listen to me pray, you say, yeah, Lord, I'm saying that to you. Okay, so would you pray with me as I lead us in prayer now? Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this scripture that's been given to us today. Lord, we don't want to just be hearers and not doers of the word. And I know that your Holy Spirit has been present. Oh, God, you've, you've promised to be present when your word is declared. And so this morning, as we think about our personal holiness, as we think about our personal set apartness to you, you know, God, our hearts, you know how we long to be completely set apart for you. But, oh, God, you also know how how we fail at it. You know the struggles that each one of us face inwardly. You know the things that we struggle with. Some of them are sins of the spirit and some of them are sins of the flesh. Some of them are sins of the tongue and some of them are sins of attitude. Lord, there's all kinds of things 
that come against us as enemies. But Lord, we read in Your Word that in Jesus Christ we can be victorious. We can, we can put our necks on those very things and be done with them. And the battle sometimes may be long and it may be difficult. And we're learning in the process. But Lord, our union with You is the key. And our depending on Your grace and our moving out from faith and not from flesh is the key. Father, I pray that people today that are sitting, standing with me and, and maybe feeling condemned, their own condemnation is upon them. I ask You in Jesus' name to lift them out of condemnation and give them a fresh promise of the victory that is theirs in Jesus Christ and the incredible amount of grace that is upon them day after day, even as they struggle. Father, would You teach us what it means to rest in Christ. To be seated with Him in the heavenlies. The seated place is the resting place. And yet at the same time to be vigilant against sin. Well, God, teach us what this means in each of our experiences. Unite us together that we might support one another in the cause of holiness for Your glory. And that we might see the power of Christ manifest in our lives. For we pray it in His precious and worthy name. Amen. God's people go in peace.